I don't want to hear any crying down the road that, oh, geez, I didn't realize you'd get sued for this or that. No, if you've decided not to see people, you bear some responsibility. We hear all this HIPAA complaining, and I think that's crap. For the emergency doctor, HIPAA is not a problem. Hey, Rick Bicata, Greg Henry, coming to you, Risk Management Monthly, September. Gregory, uh, you were in Ann Arbor, I'm in Los Angeles, and all is well. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. You know, a touch of fall has come here to Michigan. It was, I think, uh, 52 degrees when I drove in this morning. So that football weather is in the air here in Ann Arbor. So all is right with the world. Hey, listen, we got to thank uh, Randy Danielson, the dean at the uh, Western University of Health Sciences in, down in Phoenix, for you and I both received doctorates of humane letters, honorary degrees, about mm, three weeks ago when we gave commencement addresses at uh, there are ceremonies down there, and I wanted to thank Randy. I'm honored. It is the biggest, biggest plaque I have. I put it right beside my bowling trophies. I'm very pleased. Yeah, well, it, it, well, actually, it's my second biggest plaque. My my largest plaque is in my left anterior descending artery, but we won't <laughs> talk about we won't talk about uh, that. But, but it drum- was a, indeed a great honor, and we had a great time. My wife took a look at that and said, they give those to anybody, don't they? I said, now, come on now, be nice. But I hope we passed on a few words of wisdom. I was basically your your backup boy, but I was uh, proud to be there with you, Rick. Yeah, it it was fun. I've never had any experience like that. I enjoyed it. I'm kind of surprised that anybody would give a rat's ass about what you and I had to say, but (laughs) they were obviously the bottom of the barrel when they uh, asked us. Hey, here you go. Uh, you know, this month, we're going to kind of focus on some papers that we haven't done in a while. We got a, a goodly number of emails. And so uh, let's get started. Yeah, right. So, let's you know, one that. other thing, I think, I think, I think that at the ASEP Scientific Assembly in October, that you and I and a guest who will remain nameless for the time being are going to be doing a recording of Risk Management Monthly live in our EMA booth there. So if anybody wants to stop by and I don't know if they can say hello, but they can you know witness this process happening live, that'll be fun. Another mention here before we get going is that the Michigan College of Emergency Physicians We'll be putting out a course on how to be an emergency medicine expert witness. I'm teaching in that course. It's actually being held near Mesa, Arizona in early December. So if you're in that area and you're interested in doing some emergency medicine expert witness work, please call the Michigan College or send them an email and they'll give the information. So there you go, Rick. Mesa, Arizona is actually where the uh, university was that we were at. Yes, um, it was. Now, yes, what, it was. I, what I is, don't know the location of the course yet, but who knows? We may be renting a room at that building. I have no idea. Hey, listen, when is it? It's in early December, and I'm going to be one of the teachers there. You know, what's the story here? Michigan needs to stay in Michigan. Uh, they <laughs> basically, uh, you're not allowed to leave the state, you know, Arizona belongs to Arizona. Joe Arpaio owns Arizona. Uh, don't even think about going there. Joe, Joe will uh, put you in pink shorts in the jail no, no time at all. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I could see that kind of thing happening, but uh, fortunately, I have good legal representation. All right, let's get going on some cases, uh, yeah. on some uh, studies. So, Rick, our first one is, that's an interesting question. Doctor, can I drive? Well, every one of us in the emergency department or urgent care or wherever you're working, somebody's going to say, can I drive? I've got this problem I've broken my ankle, I've twisted my wrist, this, that, or another thing. So we have an article by Roberts et al. out of the, out of the journal Injury, March 2016. So this is pretty recent. And they, need, they talk about the need for a rational approach to the return to driving after muscular skeletal injuries. Now, in all truth, muscular skeletal injuries are less problematic for me than grandma who's been brought in by the family for subtler neurologic reasons. But uh, I think it is important that we do instruct people about the need to gradually get back into work. We don't tell you to start running, you know, playing tennis on your sprained ankle immediately. What kind of advice are we going to give on, um, on getting you back to driving? And there were a couple of key points in this discussion. That basically, based on the literature view, they note multiple experimental investigations testing breaking in patients, various stages of healing, those obviously with lower extremity injuries. We do have some data on this. And obviously, if it hurts to step on the brake, you may have some problem with this. Upper extremity data is much tougher to get because people aren't, I guess, is concerned about that. But orthopedists generally use weight-bearing and pain-free status as their marker for return to driving. Um, I'll, I'll just be real honest with you. I have never had to give any testimony on any case where an emergency physician was sued for not properly instructing a patient about driving. It never happened. Now, in the article, they, they cite a legal precedent about the death of a 10-year-old resulting from a compromised driver. But I think this has to be, you know, much rarer than hen's teeth. If, if I haven't heard or seen anything in the last 40 years, I don't know that this is a big medical legal issue, but I think it is certainly a patient management issue. Rick, well, yeah, when- p- people ask this question all the time. Uh, whether it results in lawsuits or not is another another matter. And I do think we have to kind of give information back that has some basis in uh, biomechanics kind of thing. Yeah. They, they came up with a, a four-point plan. A patient handout puts a patient as the decider as to when they can drive safely. It will become one more piece of paper that they leave with. But, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable. If somebody's on crutches, they've got a, uh, a Velcro splint on or something like that, that somewhere they're advised that this may compromise your driving. Uh, Number two, physicians should make it clear that under certain circumstances, driving would be considered unsafe. Like you have a cast on or you're taking opiates. That's that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, and I I think that that sort of thing has pretty much become universal. I don't know any place that gives out opiates without warnings about operating machinery. And the last time I checked, a car was a machine. So I think that's, uh, I, I think that's totally reasonable, totally normal. 
Number three, they advise patients to do some driving assessments themselves, see what they think, because actually they're going to be the determiners. And uh, if we warn and they get into trouble, it's kind of on them. And I, lastly, I, oop, I've got a, uh, I've got, by the way, an orthopedic friend here in Ann Arbor about ready to retire. But I always thought he did something wise in that he would, he would say, I want you to put the car in the driveway, back it up and down push down on the brake. If it hurts you a lot, understand that's what's going to happen on the road. And I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good advice to give to somebody. He said, you'll know when you can handle doing this. And I think most people are good. They're going to do it no matter what we tell them anyway. So at least I think that advice is reasonable. Right. Well, that would fit criteria three. Number four, and for those who drive professionally, formal licensing assessments are required. Like if you're a school bus driver or something to like that or over the road driver or something where you basically are required to have a commercial license or higher, that uh, this is not something that can be handled lightly. Over the years, these were the least problematic patients because we, we had a system set up. There's nobody going to go back to driving a bus based on one visit to my emergency department, they've got to see or be cleared by the school district's physician to go back to handling a vehicle. And when you think about it, school districts, they've got a bus full of kids. They've got liability up the wazoo sitting in the back seats, you know, throwing spitballs at each other and running up and down and all the things kids do on buses. There's no way that that most of us in the emergency departments or urgent cares are going to send these people directly back to doing a job like that. And when it comes to government jobs, you know, we'd see the people driving mail trucks, that sort of thing. Not only did they have endless paperwork we had to fill out, but I never had one of those cases where they were not referred for fairly rapid reevaluation by the uh, company doctor. Can you imagine much worse jobs than being a school bus driver? It's like, what the heck that happened to you that you have to drive a school bus? <laughs> I think I'd rather be beaten by malignant dwarfs or something, because particularly if you have like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders fighting in the back, oh my God, it'd drive me nuts. I always thought it was interesting that we put safety belts in damn near every other vehicle that there is on the road. And yet in school buses, in a lot of places, they still don't mandate seatbelts. I'd mandate seatbelts and maybe mouth gags mm-hmm. and, 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 and maybe handcuffs just for my own sanity. But no, kids running up and down the halls, I don't see it. It doesn't sound good to me. All right. Have we killed that one, Rick? You want yeah, another we one? Did, yeah, we did. Number two. Yeah. All right. This is actually an interesting paper. Because it talks about sneaky surgical emergencies, acute compartment syndrome. This is a retrospective analysis of 66 closed claims. But what's really interesting is this isn't in the United States. This isn't a place where I don't think malpractice is that common. But this is an Italian paper which looked at 66 closed claims and where they missed in some way, shape, or form a compartment syndrome. Now, there, it's very clear there are two aspects to compartment syndrome. One is thinking about it. Because once you've thought about it, I think you're 
like three quarters of the way there. And number two is getting somebody in there to do something about it. The last thing you want is an orthopod on the phone who says, well, you know, I'm just going to finish the basketball game, take a shower, come in in a couple hours. The answer to that is no, it doesn't happen. If you handle these cases, let's let's get down to business and think about it. This paper points out, by the way, of their 66 cases, 44 of them were due to trauma. Uh, and that doesn't mean direct trauma, and it doesn't necessarily mean there's a fracture, but there was repetitive activity and injury going on. In, in the rest of these cases, they were related to surgery. Now, to me, if I had a patient in there who had just had, within the last day or two, a surgical procedure, I want that surgeon coming in to see his patient. I mean, I don't, you know, when they have, in, they have a pain which is off the scale, and you and I have all seen patients with pain post-surgical, but when they have pain that's off the scale or they have any decreased pulses, there's no way I'm taking that liability. I want you in there. The other point I would make is they always point out, and in, in none of these cases did they use a manometer to measure the pressure in those compartments. I'll say this, um, and you know, I'll just ask you straight out, Rick, do you feel comfortable right now if I gave you the manometer in saying yes or no, there's a compartment syndrome in a patient? Yes or no? No. No. No, it's, no. I I, uh, I don't know that. It's kind of like almost using those freaking tonometers. You don't know whether you got it right. You don't do it enough enough to feel comfortable about it. You don't know exactly what the number is that's the issue at hand. So the answer for me is no. Maybe you, it's yes, but not for me. Well, if I'm doing eye pressures, I'm real good at that. I use I use the applination tonometer on the slit lamp. I'm good with it. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I don't do enough, and certainly in the last four years, I haven't done any. But uh, even when I was doing it, I didn't do enough that I always felt I was in the right spot. My feeling is if I've suspected this problem, I want the orthopod to come in. Is that unfair? I, it, you, you realize we're talking about a disease entity where the downside is really bad. Yes. And the time involved here is really short. Um, having done six cases, maybe it's seven now, of compartment syndromes, in my medical legal career, it's not that often, but every one of those had an element of it where they, uh, uh, <laughs> I even had one case where the kid called back, his parents called back and said, you know, this kid, he's a tough athlete and he's crying here at home. And the nurse on the phone said, just double the Percodan. And you can, and four hours later, the kid's back in and they're digging dead muscle out of his leg. Um, this, this is the kind of thing where we know what the entities are. We know what it's related to. We know what the time window is. I get moving on this one. Well, a couple uh, of other points uh, I would like to make in there as well, Greg, because you, uh, rapid onset and irreversibility make this a real uh, potential for disaster. 
most yeah. of the most of these injuries that related to trauma were of the legs. Twenty seven of the thirty three leg cases were due to trauma. Right. And the upper extremity cases were more related to surgery. They point out that somewhere in here that tibial fractures are kind of like at the top of the list for causing um, these things in the lower extremities. It is, as they say, Rick, the sine qua non of the disease entity. All cases, they said, involved permanent disabilities of varying degrees, which we'll talk about in in a second. Well, I think there are a couple of other points to be made here. Once there's been significant trauma, and people always say the same thing, well, it's got to have pain out of proportion or reason. No, about half the cases, uh, particularly those related to surgery, had significant injury, but only half of them presented with pain as the principal problem. Um, that's That really shakes me up, Rick. I'd like to think that they got to have this terrible, awful, out-of-control pain, but not in this series. They said half the cases, pain was not the principal symptom. Right. They had other things like substantial tenseness of the extremity or other associated symptoms. Interestingly, the average payout, and this this is Italy, was $575,000, which seems like a fair amount of, of money. And I guess Italy has something like something akin to what they have in New Zealand because they divided it up and basically said of this 575,000, 69% of it was due to medical error and 31% was due to the primary injury, which kind of acknowledges that this injury that you had has got to do something uh, to create this permanent disability that you have. So they apportioned it there. Well, I, uh, some countries have more rational systems. I was the advisor on a case where a young man, 17 years of age, a, a place kicker, all he did all day long at practice for the high school team was kick, you know, a soccer style kick. So he did not have a fracture. But when you do that 200 times a night, and he, he comes into the emergency department. They don't see a fracture on the x-ray. They give him some tablets. When he turns south, this was the case, by the way, where the nurse said, just double your Vicodin, you know, and we'll see you in the morning. The kid's family sued for the average income of a NFL kicker. Now, is there any, is, is there any justice uh, or basis for this? yes. This kid had been recruited by 30 or 40 schools, including LSU. The last three or four kickers from LSU all went to the pros. Now his pro career is is a vanishing mystery. It's ethereal. It ain't going to happen. Now, we did win the case. But it wasn't unreasonable for them to put that figure up to the jury because – this kid was great. He was recruited. He was going to make his living with that leg, and I think it would have been fairly. It would have been a. It would have been a tough case to say that he was not going to do well in this business. So, so you're right. Uh, this this five hundred and seventy five thousand dollars the Italians put on each of these cases that would have been peanuts 
<laughs> compared to what this kid uh, was uh, seeking damages for. Peanuts, Rick, I promise you. I could have been a contender. Yeah, he could have been a contender, right, exactly. And and that's exactly what happened. By the way, they were divided between treatment delay and misdiagnosis. That's why I say when you have a case like this, there's only so many things in emergency medicine which are absolutely time-dependent. If you have somebody with a narrow-angle glaucoma and clouding of their eye, you ought to get people moving on that. That does have some bad outcomes. If you think that we can now suck out the clots on strokes, you got to kind of get it moving. And I don't think there's anybody who believes that six hours of no blood flow to your leg is a good idea. Couple I, other, I, I just don't know it. A couple of other take on points here. As I mentioned earlier, a fracture of the tibia is the most common cause. I didn't realize the number, though. Two and a half to nine percent of tibial fractures are associated with this entity. Yep. Young age is a predisposer because you're faster, stronger than, and are less giving and less willing to to expand. They also point out, as you did, that we're talking about treatment delay was number one after misdiagnosis. So the clock is running in these cases. Yep. As you had noted previously, only. Pain was noted in only half the cases as the presenting symptoms. And, and the, here's the cool part. When it occurred, it was frequently thought to be doing related to the underlying injury, the broken tibia. So it's right. the tibia pain. It's not the ischemic pain. So there's a common source of an error. I, 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 would, I would just say, too, that everybody who's going to have a case on this is going to go to any of the standard textbooks and it's going to talk about the same things we learned about 45 years ago, the five Ps, pain, pallor, paresthesia, pulselessness, and paralysis. Now, by the time you're down to paralysis, using deep poo-poo, I mean, that's really the end of the list. The sixth P, which some people put in, is poikilothermia, a difference in the temperature of the two limbs. You know what? If, if you have a lower leg fracture... To not ask those questions, to comment on those specifically, I think would be a real mistake. I mean, what you're looking for here, nobody's going to ever accuse you of not putting the bone back together correctly. Ain't your job, not your table. What they're going to talk to you about is blood flow and, and the fact that uh, tissue does better if it's oxygenated. And I, I think that those are all pretty good things to remember. Hey, listen, you know, one of the things at the end here is, now you asked me about how comfortable I would feel with the manometer and in terms of my usage. I guess the question more fundamentally, is it the responsibility of the hospital or the emergency department to provide this instrument? And we don't like to use the term standard of care here because we just don't like to use it. But it would appear in the United States, at least, that availability of this instrument would be an anticipation. Whether you're capable of using it well is another matter. Well, see, that's the, the absolute question. I'm sure somewhere in the hospital, major hospitals, there is a monitor somewhere. I'm sure the hospital has it. It's like, I'm sure on most building projects, you know, on the side of the road, they have a machine that will put put into the ground 
telephone poles. I wouldn't want to see you using that machine, Rick, unless well, you'd been trained to do it. Well, I think that uh, we're supposed to know, and I think that there's probably a lot of physicians, particularly the, the more recently trained ones, particularly in those places that have a lot of trauma, like USC, that uh, do this with some frequency and feel very comfortable and think we're totally out to lunch talking about our lack of capability to do this. It, listen, if you feel comfortable and you're good with it and are willing to stand behind it in court, terrific. But for those people, which includes most of our listeners, if you feel uncomfortable about it, that's why they have a specialty that does this. And and I wouldn't be so testy about this, except I have seen that case where there's a emergency physician who thought they were in the right spot and they weren't. And I, I just think that we need to be honest about it. All, All right, right. Moving on to number Please three. That, baby. Yeah. I like number three. This is about uh, the litigation cost of negligent scaphoid fracture. And this is in the European Journal of Emergency Medicine. And British authors scrutinized the national database. And in their introduction, they assert, which is a, a kind of remarkable, that 40% of scaphoid fractures are initially missed. Wow. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a big number. They looked at 85 claims. The median time to submission of a claim was three years. So uh, they waited for it to really get bad and have a bad wrist. Uh, Two-thirds. In all fairness, Rick, sometimes you get partial healing of those naviculars, and uh, the patient can go a fairly long time. Uh, without recognize, you know, they keep playing the game. Well, it's going to start to feel a little better, start to feel a little better. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a long time. Two-thirds of the cases were based on a misdiagnosis, and that's where we come into play here. Yep. Factors that could relate to emergency medicine relate to misinterpretation of x-rays and failure to immobilize. So, yeah, we uh, maybe miss the x-ray, but we know clinically that if you got snuff box tenderness or axial loading pain of the thumb and you have the right mechanisms of injury, the fall on the outstretched hand, that you have to, the standard in the United States appears to be to treat these as if they are fractures by immobilizing and then following up. Now, I'm not necessarily... But there's nothing new here, Rick. You knew and I knew when we graduated med school that 15% of the x-rays do not show the fracture line immediately. I mean, they, they just told us that, and the standard was you split them up because we know that 15% of the x-rays are badly read, which is one thing, or we can't read it at all on that, and then just have them seen in a day by, the, uh, by, or, by orthopedics. Well, so I, I, don't, I don't think that's... I don't think any of that has changed. No, the I, I think, is not I think that I'm going to make a case that I would change that. But in any case, uh, the part I'd like to discuss is failure to immobilize. If we're going to do it the old-fashioned way, which is I don't see the fracture, but I'm concerned about this being the injury, so I'm going to immobilize. been a fair amount of discussion about short arm versus long arm, thumb spikers. And in case, you know, the, some of these cases are... Cases on, on cadavers and the like, and 
the distillate, I think, has been, if you really are concerned and there is a fracture, especially if there is a fracture and they're not pinning it immediately, that a long-arm thumb spike cast is preferable. But I don't even want to go there because I want to, I want to get to what I think is the way to go. The, the, amount, the amount of money, at least in these claims, was not very much. I'm really surprised. They're talking about awards of $27,000. Rick, it's Britain. They're cheap. <laughs> They're born cheap. They're all cheap. That's why they give out health care for one third the cost we do. They're cheap. You know, they point out that lack of follow-up is associated with most of the successful cases. Well, you could understand that if you're not aware of it and just say, put an ace wrap on it kind of thing and see how you feel in a few weeks. So that's a, that could easily happen. A third of the cases involve no finding of wrongdoing or monetary award by the, so the doctors were okay in a third of the cases. What's your experience? You must have some uh, litigation-related issues here. Yep, I absolutely do. And they all relate to two issues only. It is uh, not taking it seriously, believing that a negative x-ray means no fracture, which which is just ludicrous. It doesn't mean that. You know, and doing the ACE wrap and see your doctor in a month, if not better, all that kind of stuff. The next one is the delay of the follow-up. I mean, when should they be seen back? Inadequate immobilization, length of time to follow up, and what's now happening is I've got my first case of this where they're just saying, hey, you could have solved this question with an MRI. Well, that's what I'd like to discuss. Yeah. I, I personally, 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 don't like this idea of, well, I'm not sure we're going to mobilize you. We're going to get it, send you to somebody, and they're going to take another x-ray in a week or so to see if they can see a fracture line at that time. I think that, frankly, that that is ludicrous. I have better things to do than to be in a thumb spiker where I cannot wipe my a certain body parts where I cannot work as an emergency physician because I can't suture, I can't intubate, I can't do things that are required with that hand. And so I think it's the diagnostic test here is an MRI. If you're not sure with the plain films, you stick that hand in the MRI machine and and don't let anybody give you any lip about it because this is the definitive test. And those things are all over the place now. And you just put that person in line and say, We're, okay, you're, you're next, and we're going to get the diagnosis. Okay, here are the ridiculous comments which people occasionally make. Oh, but the cost is so high. You know, the truth of the matter is, if I came into the ER, I wouldn't even have them do a plain x-ray on me. If I had pain over the snuff box, I'd just say, do the MRI. Well, you, you know, if you have an obvious fracture, it'll show up, you know, on, on the x-ray. And, you know, a lot of these cases are now getting pinned right away. They're not doing this uh, six weeks of uh, long-arm thumb spike kind of jobs anymore. No. So I think the medicine has changed, Rick. And nobody is more conservative about doing studies and tests than I. Maybe you are. I mean, but we tend to be the, the nihilists of medicine. But I honestly believe that as more MRIs proliferate, they become smaller in size, faster in time. 
And when you actually look at the cost, the fixed cost of doing MRI isn't much. Yeah, look uh, at look you at own what, the machine, just shoot the picture. Look what Medicare pays for an MRI of the wrist. It's no big deal. Now, of course, the hospital is going to charge eighty million dollars, but Medicare, if we use that as a basis, which some you know people will dispute, right? The fact of the matter is, is that this is no big deal, and the idea of being a worker, a worker being incapacitated for some seven to 10 days for this 1960s approach to the diagnosis of scaphoid fractures is ridiculous. Well, I I did do a case where the plaintiff, and and this really, this case boiled down to, did the person follow the instructions of the the emergency doctor? And they clearly didn't. But the guy's work was he was a painter. He held paint brushes in his hand. And he's, of course, claiming I can't work anymore because I can't hold the paintbrush adequately. And, you know, it was clear he just didn't follow up for four weeks. But that's that's another reason. I'm going to make the diagnosis today, not in uh, three weeks or two weeks or one week. Exactly, Rick. And I think that what we focus on in medicine in this country, as opposed to the Brits, the Brits look at the total social cost. How long is this guy off? How long is this going to happen? How long before he can go back to work? All these other questions where where you and I tend to to focus on the cost of the x-ray versus the cost of the MRI. I think that's wrong. I think what you want is a diagnosis and you can then say to him, yeah, keep the ice bag on here for two days and go back to work. And you'd be correct because we really with the MRI, we don't miss much anymore. Those, those pickup rates are at the 99% level. It's unbelievable. All right, moving on, Greg. Uh, you, have, you have the fourth paper here. Oh, that's right. I, and, and again, this is, this is our perception of things. And uh, this paper, which appeared in Academic Emergency Medicine April 2015, is from UCLA, where they took 478 emergency physicians were surveyed at EM conferences about their ideas regarding what is meant by and the use of shared decision-making in the emergency department setting. They had, by the way, a 91 response rate because they were obviously captive. They were there for this meeting, and so they'd fill it out and get it back. But that's that's a terrific response. Nearly all of the respondents believe that shared decision-making could help to reduce unnecessary advanced diagnostic testing, imaging, and I agree with that completely. I think our problem is this. What what I'm now seeing, I'm seeing my first cases where they say in the summons and complaint, failure to participate in shared decision-making with the patient. Wow. And the patients say things like in their death, if only they told me, I might have done this or that. Now, I, I don't think you can have listened to this program for more than like a month and not understand we believe this to be the case in things like TPA. You've got to be a little bit honest with people. And, and you know, TPA, by the way, is go, uh, for your stroke, is going to go the way of the uh, nickel, coke, and the buffalo. I mean, they're going to disappear now that we're sucking out clots and getting a lot better results. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We yeah. just did a paper that looked at 
the eligibility for the sucking out of the clots and using the strict criteria that have been outlined in most of the studies, only 7% of stroke patients would qualify. Even That's when you, more than qualifies for TPA, Rick. Well, I'm talking about this mechanical extraction here. Right, right. The suck it out machine. And they said using liberal criteria, it would be in the neighborhood of 13% of the patients. So I think one of the things we have to dispel is, well, TPA is now the way the dodo bird and we're going to be sucking these things out. It's, um, I think that's an untruth. Hey, hey, listen, I want to go down these barriers to uh, shared decision-making because I think that these have substantial medical legal consequences. Yeah, I think they do too. So lead on, lead on, McDuff. The belief that many patients prefer that decisions be made by the doctor. These are the emergency physicians. 89% of them said they believed that the patients thought the decision should be made by the doctor. And, you know, I think that that seems pretty legit. Many believe that patients opted out for care, though they opted for care that was more aggressive than necessarily needed when given a choice. And that's really been shown before. The patients tend to want everything, do everything, doctor, kind of thing. And that was, in the view of these physicians, an inhibitor of reasonable shared decision-making. I want to make the curmudgeons comment here. And that is every one of these responses is how you ask that question to the doctors. And to a great degree, you and I, as the physician, we control the show that the patient gets. I'm perfectly willing to bet I can make people go in one direction or the other by the way I present the data. Good news, we have a magic medicine that may reverse your stroke. Do you want it? Whereas if you said, you know, I got one where 6% of all people who got it bled into their heads. You crazy about this one? <laughs> and, 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 and so I, I honestly believe that we as doctors can control a lot of the decisions the patients make. Okay, so the doctors believe... And this is at the top of the list. 89% of the doctors believe that the patients preferred that this decisions made by the be made by the physician. They don't really want to get involved in shared decision making. Right. And 81% said the patients want the most aggressive thing done. I want everything done, doctor. I want antibiotics. I want x-rays. I need it all. The third down the list, and I think this is really legit, uh, three-quarters of the doctors said Decision-making was considered too complicated for the patients. And I think that in many cases it is. I mean, there are many, many things that you would, something as simple as diverticulitis. Do I need a CAT scan? Do I not need a CAT scan? Do I need antibiotics? Do I not need antibiotics? Those things, which two years ago were, of course you need a CAT scan. Of course you need antibiotics, are now substantially being challenged. So you need to know the medicine to convey to the patients. And often it is quite complicated and they're not in really a good position to Correct. make a it's choice. It, it, there's no question that it's complicated, but that doesn't mean the good doc can't bring it down so at least the patient understands where the arguments are these days. And you're right, it, it's not all simple 
but I think you can at least involve them in the decision making or this is how I'm getting to my my treatment decisions here. I, I think that that's fair. I mean, I'm not expecting on every appendix case or supposedly appendix case that everybody knows all that literature. They should at least understand where the conflict is and where there's some risks and benefits. You'd agree with that, would you? I mean, it, we, yeah, we yeah, got to carry on some discussion with them. The fourth objection or concern that the uh, physicians had was they stayed it's the physician's job to make a decision about indicated test and treatment. It's like, it's your job, doctor. You're the doctor. You're the doctor. You know, you've heard that before. You yeah, know. yeah. You're the doctor. Then here's where the medical legal risk comes in. Failure to choose the best option might result in malpractice litigation. Failure to choose the best option may result in malpractice litigation. So well, I, I don't think we have that data yet. I, I mean, you and I can surmise a bunch of things, but I, but I haven't, I, you know, I've had a, my first case roll in where they're using the term lack of shared decision-making. I've never seen a case where they said, well, you gave us too much information and how are we supposed to know? The day that case comes in, then, I, then I'm going to validate that argument, but I'm not sure that that's happening at this time. Well, you know, I, I think, Greg, you have to be careful because in the subarachnoid hemorrhage setting kind of thing, it could be, well, your brain scan is normal, but we now need to stick a needle in your spine and suck out some brain juice. You're still are, doing, are you okay still doing with brain that? scans? Where you're doing brain scans? I know. I meant CT scan. You know what okay. I mean. Okay. Okay. So, that, so that's normal. So you get a step two here. Okay, Mr. Smith, to rule out the very slight possibility, very, very slight possibility that you have had a hemorrhage in your head and to exclude the very, very slight possibility that that hemorrhage may recur down the road and kill you, we need to stick a needle in your back and, and, and suck out your brain juices uh, <laughs> around your spinal column. Is that Okay. <laughs> Do you do you honestly think that's the way we should phrase that? I mean, I would. And, and the patient says, "I'd rather not, doctor. Thank you very much. I'll take my chances." Yeah, what I what I'd say is, I'm going to let you take a Verset assisted five minute nap here while I sort of check your your fluid. They they might like that better than suck out your brain <laughs> juices. All right, and lastly, yeah, shared decision making is too time consuming. Well, Mr. Smith, we can do a throat culture or not, or we can give you empiric antibiotics, but you don't pass the center criteria. And so I don't think that we need to do anything except give you symptomatic treatment. Oh, what are the center criteria, doctor? You know, it's like, so that's what they're talking about there. Yeah, I I, I understand. But you will admit, Rick, you'd like us to give out less antibiotics. You'd like us particularly with a poor sensitivity and specificity of doing cultures of the throat. Greg, I am for shared decision-making. I'm just a mere conduit telling you how these doctors who went to this conference feel about it and what they believe to be the barriers towards it. Okay, let's move on to some... Can I buy uh, conduits at drugstores or what's going on here? Okay. Emails. Emails. Oh, David Lang, a friend of ours. 
David wrote this very long email, which uh, I felt incompetent to address. And I, by extension, I felt incompetent for you to address. I think, I think we had to take it to a higher level, a higher level, the Bob Bitterman level. Yeah, well, thanks for your confidence in me, Rick. But, but we both love Bob, so uh, that's good. So Bob Bitterman is our uh, is an attorney, a, a physician, a championship bridge player, by the way. And, and chess player. And he uh, consults on EMTALA-related cases. Robert Bitterman at gmail.com. Robert Bitterman at gmail.com. I hear his prices are very reasonable. So here goes David Lang's first question. It relates to what is required when a physician contacts another ED for information on a patient. Man, this comes up all the time. All the time. Now I'm going to summarize what Bob said. He said the general release the patient signed at the time of registration should be sufficient. A HIPAA allows discussion between healthcare providers if it relates to the care being provided at that moment. He also says be careful that state laws may be more demanding, but you don't need any kind of special, you know, that you talk to the nurse, was Mr. Smith over there? No, I can't tell you that kind of thing. This is all for the benefit of the patient right? regarding that specific episode of care. You know, we hear all this HIPAA complaining and, oh, it does this, it does that. I think that's crap. For the emergency doctor, HIPAA is not a problem. If they specifically state you can get the other information on the patient, there is no inhibition if someone calls you on the on the restricted line or from that hospital, you at least know who you're talking to. You can get the information that you need. So I, I don't think it, it, what, what Bob is saying here is that it should not be considered inhibitory. You can get what you need, and I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely, because some, you know, there's always these junior lawyers at that place who say, oh, no, no, you got to send over a consent from the fax it over. Kind no, of you thing. don't. That's just nutty. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, and the, the other thing is let's take this down to the real level. I have, I have never seen such a case. I've never heard of such a case. My friends who do a lot of medical legal work, we talk about this. Nobody's ever seen a doctor sued for obtaining information from another hospital. Never seen it. I've seen lots of cases where hospitals have let people into the system, where they've released, you know, Madonna's uh, gonorrhea culture or all that kind of stuff at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, all kinds of these cases exist, but they don't exist for an emergency doctor. I mean, Rick, have you ever heard of such a case? No, but I have heard of cases where physicians are being stonewalled by some nurse at the other end saying, I cannot give you that information without you sending a consent from the patient. And what that is, that's a lack of current information on what the law says. Right. So the law is not the problem. The problem is what people think the law says. And that's why it's great to have guys like Dr. Bidham around who just say, you know what? <laughs> that's just wrong. All right, number two, Greg. Yeah, uh, there's some chagrin here that many EDs are performing a screening exam 
And if the patient doesn't have medical emergency, what they consider to be a medical emergency, they want a payment right then and there to continue the care. Dr. Binneman says this is becoming more common. He notes that a screening exam is a misnomer. It's not screening. It's the exam required, which is necessary, to see whether an emergency service treatment is needed. And it, it, it shouldn't be a, a sort of a blow-off, two questions, now nah, get out of here. It's what you need to make a decision. And frequently, and, and I think Bob points this out, frequently the amount of work required to know whether an emergency exists, it's almost no more effort to go ahead then and treat the patient, Rick. Yeah, you got it. And uh, Bob uh, makes it clear that be a doctor for crying out loud. Yeah. If a triage nurse can see patients decide what order they're going to be seen in, but only the board of directors of the hospital can approve which people are qualified to do MTALUS screening, again, misnomer examinations. There is no question that it doesn't necessarily have to be an MD. It may be the nurse practitioner. It may be the PA. But they have to be approved by the hospital to do MTALA examinations. So just plain old triage is not the same thing. They should not be confused. Right. Uh, he, um, there's a, David had asked a question about well, somebody comes in at 3 o'clock in the morning with a, a rash that they've had for six months. It is of the most benign nature. Can the triage nurse say, see your family doctor in the morning? And I think if you've listened to this thing for more than an hour, you would know that the answer to that is absolutely not for the reasons that you have elucidated. In addition, nurses are not allowed to do that by the nature of their license in the state. They are not allowed to make medical diagnoses like that and medical treatment. So the idea here is you're screwing up on multiple levels. And I have to be candid. I think that most hospitals are not going to authorize non-physicians to do the medical screening exam because, frankly, you can't get this wrong. Right. It will be very expensive if you if you screw this up. Well, I certainly know those hospitals which have approved their advanced practice providers under certain circumstances to do this. But the hospital should understand, the physician understand, you're taking on a responsibility here. And I don't want to hear any crying down the road that, oh, geez, I didn't realize you could get sued for this or that. No, if you've decided not to see people you bear some responsibility and you got to kind of suck it up. And that's, that's part of being a doc. And again, I've heard this argument many times, just a note to listeners. When you have a question about whether something is or is not MTALA compliant, whether it's HIPAA, this or that, don't let the administrators or a low level voice tell you what's correct just refer them to Dr. Bitterman. He does this for a living. He gives opinions to hospitals, insurance people, physician groups. He, that's what he does for a living. Spend the money and get a real decision and then show that to the hospital so they at least have to deal with something real. 
Okay, I think we're done with Dr. Lang's uh, note. I wanted to add that if you have any, our listeners have any questions, please forward them to us. Give us your cases that you think may be educational for your colleagues. We don't have to use your name and do it. We enjoy it very much and are encouraging you to participate. Rick, we have another question here, which I think is is absolutely important for all of us to deal with. And that is, somebody sent a letter to you and me and to Jerry Hoffman, as a matter of fact, even though that uh, Jerry isn't on the program, and he was kind enough to answer. He said he wants to be anonymous, but he says, we have a 59-year-old physician who is really good and would prefer to do 14 graveyard shifts in a row. That's 14 midnight shifts in a row. Now, to me, I think he needs immediate psychiatric evaluation, but that's a different opinion. He likes to travel. He likes his time off. And he was doing this at several other places he works. But the question being asked really is, is putting somebody on for 10 or 12 hour shifts, graveyard shifts, 14 of these things in a row, is that does that bring some liability on the group if he screws up is somebody could come forward and say well of course it was his 13th of 14 nights on of course he's not thinking straight what do you think rick well i i answered that one as well i want to get that guy's name and address and have him work at our hospital for like yes of course <laughs> No, I think that one of the things i recommended that they do is to call this fellows former employers, and it would be very interesting what they have to say regarding his performance. I do think that there's the potential. I mean, I just don't want to write this guy off. I do think there is the potential for some supermen to be out there. Now, to find them, good luck. I think that as a ER director, you are on thin ice if anything happens with this person, because when it is known to the general lay public that this guy has worked these hours making decisions relating to life and death, it will not pass the sniff test. And I don't think that we're obligated to do something like 14 in a row. I, I would say, okay, fine. Let's do four in a row and take two off and see how that goes. And then maybe five in a row and take two off. But I certainly, certainly, certainly would not initiate somebody 14 shifts in a row. No way, Jose. The common understanding of hiring people is, and there are plenty of jobs where they work five midnight shifts and they have two days off and five midnight shifts and two days off. A lot of people can understand that. But I think there are very few other professions where they work 14 midnight shifts in a row. The people to look at on this for safety concerns are the airlines. Their guys can only fly so many hours, and then they have to have so many hours off. They can only do it for like two days in a row, and then they have to have a full day off. And those planes fly themselves for crying out loud. those planes now fly themselves, exactly. I mean, the biggest fear the airline pilots have is that uh, they won't be needed at all. Yeah, Google is going to come up with a pilotless airplane. Pretty yeah. soon. I, 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 um, I'll throw this in parenthetically. There is uh, here in southeastern Michigan a huge tractor and, and farm implement show going on. This is the Midwest. We farm here. 
And one of the new case distributors, Case International Tractor Loaders, put out a tractor which doesn't even have a cabin on it for a driver. It's totally controlled by somebody in another state, and they had them do 10 acres or something like that, lay out the parameters, program it, put it in, and it can beat a guy on a tractor. The old member, uh, John Henry, the steel driving man, kind of could, could beat the thing down. Well, you can't beat the thing down. The automated tractor, nobody sitting in it, programmed, can beat a guy who's, who's running the tractor. They're doing this by GPS anyway. You ever see how straight those roads are? No human being could drive that thing that straight. These things right. are, yeah, the, these guys... Farmers are going to like this. I think across country truck drivers may uh, have a little concern about this, but this is the way it's moving surprisingly quickly too. Yeah. So yep. what else you got? Well, I, I have, I've got a very uh, interesting sort of uh, takeoff on this. And we've got one here that goes back to you and I and our questions on pain management. And this is a guy, he said, we can use his name, Jeff Anderson. Hi, Jeff. Hope you're listening. He's very confused on uh, my opinion and your opinion views on pain management in the emergency department. Several times you've brought this up in various podcasts, which I've listened to. Although it is clear that we are not the major prescriber of pain medicine in the United States. Thank you for picking up on that. It is also very clear in the United States that there's a huge problem with pain medicines. So how do we view it? What are we going to do? Who gets it? He doesn't seem to have a problem with acute pain from an acute injury. 16-year-old boy broke his wrist playing football and giving him three or four days of pain medication doesn't see a problem. We all like that kind of patient. Second group of patients he mentions are the acute exacerbations of chronic pain. And when they only come and go at intervals, somebody says, well, last year I had a bad migraine, you treated me. I haven't been treated since then. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. It's always the chronic pain patient, migraineurs, sickle patients, back pain, dental pain, this, that, and other thing. What are we going to do? What's going to be the new methodology of handling these things? Because, and he was kind enough to send us something from the AMA morning report, morning rounds that says box warnings are to be required for opioids and benzodiazepines, as if that's going to change either your knowledge of the disease, Rick, or the patient's desire to have the medications. So let's let's clarify what our views are on this, and just to make Jeff feel better. Go ahead. Well, you know, I think the acute pain, the broken ankle, the abscess that needs to be drained, those kinds of things, it's pretty straightforward that, you know, opiates are perfectly appropriate Three, four, five days may be reasonable. Are they going to see a doctor in follow-up who can reassess the situation at that time? Are there some other things that can help relieve the pain, the elevation, the ice, some non-opiate analgesics that could be supplementing the opiates? There's TENS devices. There's all kinds of things that have been thrown out there as options. Yes, the problem now is exacerbations of acute pain based on top of chronic pain. I've seen patients I know personally who have periodically get excruciating, excruciating back pain. 
it, it goes away, and then they're they're fine for a period of time, and then out of the blue comes this recurrence of excruciating back pain. I think those patients require something that is adequate right then in the emergency department. It may be an injection, and an, and I can tell you, it's not going to be an injection of keto Rolac if I have anything to do with it. So they're going they're going to get something substantial in the emergency department, and then the question becomes. What are we going to do on an ongoing basis? A lot of these patients, unfortunately, are not insured. They can't go to a pain doctor. They can't go to physical therapy. They can't buy a TENS unit. They don't have access to the things that they need to allow for other adjunctive measures to be used to moderate their pain. And so it's really tough because what are you going to give them? Here, here's some Tawin kind of thing. So I think those cases are tough largely because they don't have a lot of capabilities to follow these patients. I mean, does your hospital, Greg, do they have a, a pain management service? Well, we do have something was, which is available, and I'll mention in a second. So we can agree that acute pain, you treat it. I tend to treat those people acutely with opioids, ice bags, all those usual things. And for three days, Again, I will say I have never made an addict by giving him a few pain pills. I've never treated addiction by denying a few pain pills. And I've never seen a legal case based on an acute pain problem. But what we're now seeing are people suing the doctors, and ER docs can be involved in this, on perpetuating their dependency. So at my last hospital, we did have a way of every month reviewing our frequent flyers. Certain people were sent letters. We set them up with evaluations by a pain specialist at the hospital, which when they don't show up for three of these visits, then we, and we have social workers who will get it paid. We'll get certain things done for these people but we want to get them on some trajectory where people are asking the right questions about their pain. The truth of the matter is, the reason I feel bad about it is, I would like to treat their pain. It just is, I might not be the ideal location to handle them over a period of time. We tend to flop around. We have, we have a different doc on each time, and they probably need somebody. And a lot of these people do have severe psychological problems uh, along with their pain, and the two go together to manage it. So I think that for the department to sit down and say, these three people, too many visits, not enough success in managing the pain, they need to start, we need to contact them, set up their visits, that sort of thing. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do, Rick. Well, it's an extraordinarily reasonable thing to do, but I don't think it's accessible uh, in uh, three-quarters of the United States. I, you know what? I think in three-quarters of the United States it is. The problem is we don't believe it is. We believe that it it's too hard to accomplish, and I don't think that's true. Well, somebody has to set it up. There's right. no question about that. But somebody yeah. has to pay for it, too. And, well, somebody has are- to pay for some of it, but you know what? Somebody's paying for everything. When they come to the emergency department, somebody's paying for it, uh, and and I think that it we need to we need to block re, re 
position our thinking on this issue. Hey, listen, yeah. I got no problem. We're talking about multi-specialty approach to the treatment of chronic pain, exacerbations of mm-hmm. chronic pain. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah, no I argument there. No argument there. But there's a lot of people that fall through the cracks on this and don't have the access to the things that you're talking about. I'm, and we don't even want to get into the drug seeker thing now. I think that that is, you know, even a, we're running out of time and that's a totally different matter. I think yeah. we're talking about pain who are totally legitimate, who are coming in with exacerbations of, of genuine back pain. They're clearly in distress and that we need to do something for them. What we can do over an hour is one thing. What happens over the next four or five days is another. And many of us do not have the resources to take care of the ne- over the next four or five days. And I think that that's really bad. I think that, you know, we still have 20 million Americans who are uninsured in the United States despite Obamacare. We also have a bunch of Americans who now have insurance, quote unquote, that has ridiculously high deductibles who are in, in effect uninsured. Yeah. So we there are many, many issues that focus on the care of chronic pain. Yeah, we have we have a, a patchwork crap healthcare system where it's very difficult to know what's covered and what isn't. Obviously, the recent discussions on the quadrupling of the cost of an EpiPen. Now, let's take this for a second. The EpiPen takes about a buck's worth of of, uh, epinephrine and puts it in a syringe and puts it in you automatically. We could could buy them all, a a boxcar load of syringes and needles and the little glass ampules and they'd have to be taught to know how to use it. But you know what? That would cost you five bucks a hit. What is it now for the for the double packs? Six hundred and eight dollars. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting that you brought that up because uh, as you know, I write a column for EP Monthly and EpiPen was the uh, basis of my column, which is coming up, I guess, in a month or two. I just wrote it. Yeah. It's not just about EpiPen, but that's just the poster child for drug companies doing whatever they damn well please with regards to the pricing of these drugs. And there have been story after story after story in the L.A. Times about the EpiPen situation and expanding it to looking at other medications. We have the $1,000 you know, pill for hepatitis C. I mean, the list is long and basically... We can't do a damn thing about it because these guys can choose to do whatever they want. And as long as the capitalistic system is broken, whereby we have competitors and one person wants to have the drug cost less than is the competitor, as long as that thing's broken, which it is, these guys have us by the balls. And they have had us by the balls for a long time. I'm tired of it. Earlier today, I stopped by the... um pharmacy to pick up my Humalog. And I'm on two different insulins. And the pharmacist said to me, now, don't have a kitten when I tell you what this is going to be. And I said, well, you know, I'm covered. So he says, well, no, you're actually not completely. (laughs) And so with your copay, they've doubled the cost of Humalog. I said, well, this isn't a new drug. There's nothing. He said, and then they it's do it the in- delivery system. And they said, 
it's doubled now. And I thought, oh my God, now, you know, can I handle it? Sure. But not everybody in the country can. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people to whom that's a whole lot of money. And it's bizarre what we do. Okay, so we've got to wrap this up. We're going to talk about wine of the month. I'm going to talk about one of my favorite areas, underrated and basically a great cost value, and that's the state of Washington. Now, again, the people I, I, I'm very fortunate that people give me bottles of wine occasionally, friends, all that sort of stuff. And I want to mention that if you are a state of Washington fan, obviously in composition with the state of California, but We've ne- I've never seen better reviews than on something called Betz, B-E-T-Z, Family Winery. You can just bring them up on the internet. It'll show you where their distributors are around. But they are making a Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's called Heart of the Hill. It's from Columbia Valley in the state of Washington. And this is getting reviews like I've never seen before. And, and I know the guy who reviews for Parker in this area. His name is uh, Jeb Dunnock. And this guy is saying things which are unbelievable. He's rating this wine a 98. This uh, 2014 Betts Family Winery, Cabernet Sauvignon, Heart of the Hill. You know what? Don't don't pay a zillion bucks for for something when, when you can get a wine that they're going crazy over. The next one. Well, wait a minute. Wait, wait. How much does it cost there, Chief? Well, this is more in the $40, $50 range, Rick. But that's not, this isn't like that $200 a bottle Opus One stuff out of California or a $400 bottle of something out of France. I mean, this is still reasonable money. And I, I know you don't believe that, and but but it is. I mean, you got to stop buying Mad Dog 2020, Rick. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not becoming for you. The, the next one out of Washington is, I haven't tried it yet. But it's called uh, Doubleback is the winery, 2013 Cabernet. It's from, they're in Walla Walla. Now, I, I think they liked the town so much they named it twice, Rick. Walla Walla, that's pretty They good. were stuttering. But for the guy to say a fabulous wine, a fabulous wine, again, reasonably priced, I, I you know, rating it at like a 95, that's the kind of ratings they give those great expensive wines from France. You know, there's there's still good stuff to be had here. And uh, I the one I've tasted, the double back, I have not. And so it's on my list of wines to try in the next few weeks. So there you go, Rick. That's Wine of the Month. Gregory, that is the September issue of Risk Management Monthly. Thank you. I'm going to see you in Las Vegas in two weeks. For our uh, PANP conference, the Advanced Bootcamp course, of which you'll be participating in, I know all of you listening have sent your PAs and MPs to our courses, and if you have not, shame on you. But that's Rick Vicata here signing out, Gregory. I'll see you, buddy. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.